caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty mm -hmm. when he rises to terrify the earth. Mm. Stop regarding men in whose nostrils is breath for of who, of what account is he? Amen. Just want to just want to remind us, um, as far as distractions go, silence your cell phones, and I encourage parents, parent your children. We just don't want to be a distraction to the preaching of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for your presence. Come by your Spirit. Over these next few moments, Lord God, we would pray that you would speak to our hearts Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Come meet with your people this morning. Through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Title is The End of the World as We Know It. If you're a guest this morning, we're in a series in Isaiah. Obviously, we're in Isaiah chapter 2. We've got a long ways to go. So you're, you're picking up with us early on, so that's great. It's wonderful. I would encourage you, if you weren't able to be here last week, go back to the website. 
think it's important that you would hear um, that sermon from last week for us as a church, Trinity. In 1987, R.E.M. famously sang the song or the, lyric, the, lyric, the words to the song. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. End of the world predictions have come from all corners of the universe. From Jews to Christians to Muslims to Jehovah Witnesses to Mormons. From secular places like politics a lot of money has been made from end-of-the-world predictions. It sells books in religious circles, and it sells advertisements in clickbait articles from secular circles. As I make the rest of this opening introduction illustration, I'm not seeking to make any political points. Therefore, please don't make any political replies. It is interesting when... Someone amens to a political point and doesn't for a biblical point. So for the next five minutes, I release you from making any noise whatsoever. And then you can later on, after the five minutes, make all the appropriate response noise to the preaching of the word. But I want to give you some examples from government, end of the world predictions, from Hollywood, number two, and from religious circles, number three. This book was written in 1967. It's titled Famine, 1975, America's Decision, Who Will Survive? Sold a lot of copies. Its premise was that due to population growth that by 1975, we could no longer feed everyone. In 1982, UN official Mustafa Toba Executive Director of the United Nations Environmental Program warned that, quote, by the turn of the century, an environmental catastrophe will be witnessed um, devastation as complete and irreversible as any nuclear holocaust. In 1989, Noel Brown, also Director of the United Nations Environmental Program, said that entire nations could be wiped off the earth if global warming trends were not reversed by 2000. Senator Gaylord Nelson said that there would be mass extinction by 1995. In 2006, Al Gore famously released a movie and book entitled An Inconvenient Truth in which Gore said that humanity only had 10 years left before the world would reach a point of no return. Two years later, um, well, the movie featured Florida, that's us, and Manhattan being washed away from the flood, it's reported two years later that Gore bought a preach, uh, beachfront, no comments please, beachfront home in Los Angeles. Most recently, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called climate change her generation's World War II. Millennials and Gen Z, this is quote, millennials and Gen Z and all these folks that come after us are looking up and we're like, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. And your biggest issue is how are we going to pay for it? Not trying to make a political comment of any sort whatsoever, just trying to make a case that from political circles and next Hollywood circles and then next religious circles, there are a lot of predictions about the end of time. Hollywood, there's a long list of movies that I could mention, but just three. World War Z, The Hunger Games, The Walking Dead. We'll move on. Religious circles, beginning with religious cults, Jim Jones. Actually, nothing on the screen for this, but the Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gates. But perhaps I save, maybe I would say the most embarrassing for last would be us, evangelical Christians. In 1970s, um, the late great planet Earth sold half a million copies. In 1988, there were 88 reasons why the rapture will take place in 1988. 4.5 million copies. The author, Edgar Wisenant, once said, quote, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. 1988 came and went. So he revised it to 1989, published another book. And fortunately, it didn't sell quite as well. Harold Camping uh, first predicted that Judgment Day would occur, 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 excuse me, 
on or about September 6, 1994, when that date came and went. He shifted to October 2nd. That day came and went. In 2005, he predicted it would be May 21st, 2011. That prediction was widely spread because Family um, Radio, which he was a part of, uh, did an advertising campaign. And this was actually, these were billboards that were around the country. May 21st, 2011 came and went. He then said that the end time would come October 21st, 2011. That came and went. Some of his followers, um, here's an example. One of his followers uh, painted the car, saved the date. Camping, this is, this is good news, later admitted that he no longer believed that anybody could predict the day or the time. And he actually said that in attempting to do so, it was sinful. The granddaddy of them all. Y2K. 1999 was the end of time hysteria. Now I throw all those out on the table, if you will, to end with a little bit of a surprise for you. There's something in all of them that Isaiah agrees with. Here's our big idea from our text this morning, chapter two. The purpose of the people of God was to bring hope to the nations. You're gonna see that in verses one through five. The problem was that they were too earthly minded to do any heavenly good. You're gonna see that in the following section. And in the final section, we will see, but there will be a day. And that's where Isaiah agrees with everybody I just mentioned. There will be a day. It's called the day of the Lord. So the purpose of the people of God was to bring hope to the nations. That'll be our first point. I'm calling that point number one, the cure. But the problem was that they were too earthly minded. This is the people of God to do any heavenly good. And so I'm calling that point number two is the problem. And then the third point will be there will be a day. So let's dive in. The cure. The cure can be found in verses one through five, but before we reread those, before we dive too far into the cure, I want you to see that we're in a section of Isaiah that's about the day of the Lord. That's the big theme going on here in these verses, that, that Isaiah is unpacking for them and unpacking for us that there's a coming day of judgment and salvation, the day of the Lord. Or sometimes in scripture, it's just referred to as that day. We won't read all the places that we see that in this section, but I just want to point to, to one, and then I'll just give you verses on the other. The first one is here in verse 11, where verse 11 ends, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's referring to the day of the Lord. You'll see it again in verse 12, 17, 20, and then in chapter 3, verse 7 verse 18, and then in chapter four, verse two. And so it's a, it's a regular reference, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, just trying to set things up for you to see that's the theme in this section of Isaiah. The day of the Lord, it evokes awe, stunning awe, earth-shaking awe. I've read of people, perhaps some of you have been in earthquakes, major earthquakes. I'm not, I've read of people who have been in major earthquakes and just that, that sense, I've never been in one, so I have no clue, but can try to imagine. But it's just that sense of the earth is shaking so seemingly out of control. There's nothing you can grab onto. Everything is shaking. There's a sense of terror to that, obviously. There's a sense of awe to that. The day of the Lord is to evoke in us, we could, we could call it the great and terrifying day. The, the awesome, the fearful day. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of salvation. How can it be both? It's always been both. Um, we can go to Adam and Eve and it was both. They were judged and they were saved. We can go to Noah and it was both. 
We can go to Isaiah. These individuals will be judged and God will keep a remnant of people for himself. And through that remnant, through the branch, right, Jesus will come. So the Messiah. So there's, there's judgment and there's salvation here in this book. And greatest display is Christ on the cross. It was a day of judgment. Christ was judged on behalf of our sins. It was a day of salvation. So the people of God in this section, these first verses, there to be a means of grace, what I'm calling a cure. Let's read the first few verses again. Verse one, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem or concerning the people of God. All right, is the way in which we could read that. This is the people of God or what we've been saying over these weeks. It's the people inside the four walls. The people of God are addressed by God before there's ever any addressing of those outside the four walls, right? God always brings restoration and brings revival to the church, to the people of God before there ever is and so that's, that's helpful for us because we usually tend to think like, oh, what's wrong with the world? And Isaiah appropriately adjusts us and, and has us looking at what's wrong with us, okay? So he's addressing the people of God, verse one. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, <clears throat> excuse me, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the, the God of Jacob, that, this is, this is really mind-blowing, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We'll stop there for, for now. <clears throat> Here's what's happening. He's addressing the people of God and he's saying to the people of God, the surrounding nations are to make their way to you. And when they come to you, you're to proclaim, you're to teach them the ways of the Lord. How does he put it? Verse three in the middle there, that he may teach us his ways and that he, we may walk in his paths. That's, that's speaking of the proclamation of the people of God to the surrounding nations. That, that, that's amazing. Like you probably didn't think that in the first chapter, now we're rolling into chapter two, by the time we get two chapters into Isaiah, that actually that's where we're gonna start to be exhorted in our great commission, right? Like that's supposed to be New Testament things, right? That's supposed to be Matthew 28 type things, right? But, but no, this, this here in the Old Testament, the people of God are to be positioned for the surrounding nations to make their way to them up the mountain of the Lord, if you will, up Jerusalem to them. And, and when they come to them, they're to be a witness of God to the surrounding nations. That they may teach his ways and may the people may walk in his paths. It's a mercy of God that God would, when it says the surrounding nations, it's not necessarily meaning this nation and this nation. This Often scripture uses that reference to nations as the people groups that the surrounding people groups are to come to the people of God and to be taught the things of God and to walk in his paths. That's what's being said here. It's not unlike things that Jesus did say in the New Testament. I'll read of those in just a minute, but look at the result of that. Verse four, he shall judge between the nations, that's the Lord. The Lord shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall, 
Beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In other words, the, the divine call on the people of God is to be a witness to the surrounding people groups of the things of the Lord, to teach them the paths of the Lord. And as they learn these things, the Lord will be their judge. And it's a picture of the Lord will bring peace, right? That's gonna be the result, so they're gonna put down their swords and they're gonna pick up their plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the picture of here's how God wants to use the people of God in the Old Testament here in Isaiah. And Jesus says some things similar, doesn't he? Matthew 24 and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Christ was then resurrected. I've already referenced it, but let's hear it read. And Jesus came and said to them, this is the resurrected Savior. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It sounds a lot like Isaiah. Verse five, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It seems like they should add, amen. <laughs> or all the people said, amen. To the glory of his name forever, amen. But that's not there because that's not their heart's posture. It's not an amen moment for the people of God here in the Old Testament. So again, he's saying, people of Judah, Jerusalem, people of God, you're to be a cure to this world. You're to be, you're to be a proclamation to, to the surrounding people groups as they come to you. You're to proclaim to them. You're to teach them. You're to live among them in such a way that teaches them the paths of the Lord to the surrounding nations. Cure, number one. Number two, there's a problem. They failed to deliver the message of hope to the surrounding nations. This is what you're to be. This is your, this is your divine purpose, people of God. Verses six through 10, they failed to bring that message of hope to the surrounding nations because the people of God were people of God by name only. They weren't followers of God. They believed in God. They said God type things. To some extent, we would even say they were faithful people. They continued in religious acts of worship. They continued in sacrifices. They had a religious following of God and yet their hearts were far from God. They could be us this morning. They could say, well, I believe in God, but in name only do I live for God. So we hear things like this in chapter one. What to me, the Lord speaking, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams. Now they were commanded to do these, but the Lord is saying, I've had enough. Stop it. And the fat of well-fed beasts, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Is it, who, who's required of you to just come, come in name only, just religiously come and offer these sacrifices to me with no heart whatsoever to worship me? They were religious. They had an appearance of godliness and yet their heart was far from the Lord. And the thing was, is in the verses one through five, they're there to deliver this transforming message to the surrounding nations. And instead, they were transformed by the nations. You've heard the phrase said probably at some point, 
heard people say, you know, he or she is so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. That's not our problem. Right? Like, none of us here this morning can say, you know, guys, I am just so heavenly minded. I'm of no earthly good. That's not where we land. Here's where we land. Here's where they land. I am so earthly minded. I am of no heavenly good. That's the concern for us this morning. So captured by the things of this world. And this is them. We'll read it here in just a moment. Isaiah is saying, people of God. This is the chosen people of God. You've been given this message to carry it to the surrounding nations. This is your divine purpose. This is the mission that God has called you to on this earth, in this life. We like to ask that question, right? Like, what's my purpose for living? Here it is. God created you and then he recreated you. He gave you life and then he gave you new life. And the reason for the new life, here's your purpose. It's to go into all the world and preach the good news to a lost and dying world. Praise God that we get to even be in that conversation. But they're lethargic Christians. They're lethargic God followers. And so often... That's what we are in the church today. And that's why we're preaching through Isaiah. And that's why Christians need, they, we need the whole Bible. We need Isaiah. And we need to preach through the whole Bible. And we need to walk through it slowly sometimes. It's why we need to hear the entire word of God preached. Not, amen, that's an appropriate amen. And not just a preacher's preferences. You know what? If it was my preference, we wouldn't preach Isaiah chapter two. It's a little bit of hard work this week. <laughs> there'd be easier things to preach or there'd be a little more like, uh, maybe we call them pet passions for me to preach this morning. But we need the word preached to our hearts because we probably wouldn't land here. You, you either. Tozer, A.W. Tozer argues that we need, quote, spiritual energy of sufficient voltage to produce great saints again. The breed of mild, harmless Christians grown in our generation is but a poor sample of what the grace of God can do when it operates in power in the human heart. Amen? <laughs> right? The emotionless act of accepting the Lord practice among us bears little resemblance to the whirlwind conversions of the past. We need the power that transforms, that fills the soul with a sweet intoxication that will make a former persecutor be beside himself with the love of Christ. Right? God help us. And rather then fulfilling that, that message, that mission that God had given them, rather than bringing that message to the surrounding nations, they became like them. And so Isaiah is gonna warn them of coming judgment. Let's read verses six through eight, and let me give you a clue as we're reading. If, you, if, you're, if you're one that marks in your Bible, get your pen ready, and just circle or mark the word full or filled as we read. For you, speaking of the people of God, have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because the people of God, they are full of things from the east. There's the first full. They're full of things from the east, of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their own fingers have made. Filled four times over. They're filled with stuff, right? 
First of all, they're filled with things from the east and they're, they're going after these fortune tellers. And it's a picture of the people of God trying to figure out what's my fortune. If, if I could know my future, then maybe I can trust today as opposed to, you know what? I can trust the Lord and not know what tomorrow's gonna bring. There, there's a big faith trust moment going on there in verse number six. And secondly, they were filled with silver and gold, meaning they were filled with materialism. They were filled with the riches of the world. They were filled, that's, that's how the surrounding nations operated. And then they were third, filled with horses. What? Filled with horses? That means... They put their trust in military might. That would be like us saying they were filled with F-22s and F-15s and 16s and F-35s and all the other Fs that I don't know about. They're filled with a military might. They put their hope in their ability to defeat the surrounding armies. Their trust was not in the Lord. Their trust was... We're bigger and badder and we got better horses than they do. Number four, they were filled with idols, filled with other gods to worship. Praise be to these other gods. They have brought about our deliverance. Trust. Got to know the future because I don't know if I can trust God with today. Wealth. Trust in materialism, trust in military might, worship of other gods. Does this book sound anything like 2019, living in America? People say, we need the Bible, we need, we need to make it relevant. No, we don't. It is relevant. We just need to give it. It's where we live who we are. It's who we're tempted to be. Another way to think about these verses is that they were filled with their glory. These are glorious things that they're talking about. Knowing the future, it's a pretty glorious thing. Wealth, military power, other gods. They were filled with the glory of the things that their hands could make. They were filled with the things that they could have ownership in. control, things that they've self-produced. Another way to say it is they were full of themselves. They're loaded up in pride. And that's not a compelling picture to a world that is also competing to be full of themselves, right? So, so what are we offering the world? If all the church has to offer to the world is its worldliness with a little religion sprinkled on it, a little church life sprinkled on it, entertainment, but a little sanctified entertainment sprinkled on it. If, that, if that's all we have to offer the world, then the world looks at us and says, well, why would I want to be a part of that? We're not offering the world a little sanctified Entertainment, we're offering the world the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that we can say, I want to give my life to that. Ray Ortland puts it like this If we were honest, many of us would have to admit that we are bored and boring. So let's face it the world is not going to be won by Christians like us. We have no compelling power. Mediocrity never does. And no matter how brilliant our devices for church development, maybe, no matter how effectively we may conceal our weakness under a facade of outward success, one thing is certain, we will continue as we are, quote, till the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field, Isaiah 32. Well, that's the way I'd put it. That's the way he would put it, Ray Ortland. How would Jesus put it? Maybe that's most important. 
Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of, that's rhetorical, (laughs) it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. They were filled with the things of this world. They were so earthly minded. They were of no heavenly good. Verse 9, so man, here's the result, so man is humbled. Each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust for from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. This is the result of their filling of themselves of the things of the world. The pride that we just heard about. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The day of the Lord. What will God do with the pride of his people then? And what will God do with the pride of his people now? He will humble us. And he alone will be exalted on that day. Certainly makes us think of Philippians 2 where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some of us are so filled with the fear of what if I lose these things that fill me? What if our nation lost its military might? What if you you lost your gold and silver, the materialism I'm afraid to lose my wealth. I'm afraid to lose my power. I'm afraid to let go of the gods of this world. I am pro amendment too, but let me just drop this in there. It's not our hope. It's not where we put our hope, our trust, our faith is not in your military might as a nation, as a person. Your hope is to be rooted in the Lord. See, the worst thing, the worst thing is not that we would lose these things. The worst thing is that we might gain these things and in so doing, lose a greater thing. By becoming captured by these things and losing our delight in the glory of God. That's what's happening here. And to that, I would just say, God, help us. God, humble us. God, do what you need to do to bring us to our knees before you in humility and crying out to you. I was to lose all the stuff which would then bring me or us or you to to a place of repentance and faith and say, God, lose all the stuff. To lose a lesser thing, to gain a greater thing. To lose a lesser treasure, really? To gain the treasure of which is the Lord himself? To lose treasure this side of eternity? No hearses dragging U-Hauls. Things that we can't take with us to gain eternity with him, in him, God help us. God humble us. Number three is the day of the Lord. Verse 11, just note again all the references to all and every. We read verse 11 at the end there, 11b, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. These are just pictures of of the might and the glorious things that human hands have made. 
against all the oaks of Bashan and against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills and against every high tower and every fortified city wall and against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. It's a refrain from verse 11. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. There will be a day. There will be a day, the day of the Lord. And on that day, the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. All else, all else will be appropriately placed before him. All else will be leveled and lowered and humbled but the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. James tells us, we preached it, our last series, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? Pride deceives us. Verse 18, and the uh, idols shall utterly pass away and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord Speaking of that day and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold. Yes, we will. We'll finally be before the greater treasure, the greater glory, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats. They'll just toss them to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the the clefts of the cliffs and from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the Lord, the earth, excuse me, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he? Wow. Pride deceives us and says, what account am I? He wants to speak back to the text. Let's take an account of all of my glory and all of my splendor and all of my might, my power, and my wealth. The idols here in verses 18 through 22 that, that they so value, that we so value and prize, they're being thrown like trash to the moles and bats. Pride deceives us and says, this is valuable because our hands have made it. We worked hard for that materialism. We made that, didn't we? We prize and treasure our idols because they promise us this peace and this safety and this comfort and even this power. No one perhaps has captured it better than J.R.R. Tolkien. If Middle Earth is to be rescued, then the one ring that rules them all must be tossed into the fires of Mount Doom, destroying the ring forever. My precious. Destroy the ring, Frodo. It promises something. Destroy it. Cast it into the fire. Tolkien got it. It's not random. He got it. Do we, do we get it? The key to life is not, these are the things that I must hang on to because they promise me life. The key to life is what we throw away. The key to life is not, this is what holds my gaze and my affection and my love and even my worship, my precious promises to give me life, but all the while we carry it to our own death. Cast it into the fire, Frodo. It's the Lord alone who on that day will be exalted. They think, we think, that the splendor of majesty is found in the things, the, the things that fill us. in their splendor and things are exposed for what things are useless on that day and God is exposed for what he is on that day he alone 
is exalted in his splendor. John had a vision 700 years later. He wrote about it. We can read about it in the book of Revelation. Here's how John put it. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, hear them, the mighty of the earth, right? The exalted ones of the earth. And the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That is the great and terrible day. So what do we do with this Old Testament message in our day? How do we prepare ourselves for that day, the day of the Lord that John is writing about. Isaiah will continue to encourage us. Eventually we'll get to chapter 40. Specifically in chapter 44, he will say this, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Yeah, we're headed there. Amen. We are headed there. How do we respond to this Old Testament book written thousands of years ago? We humble ourselves before the awesome glory of our God. We humble ourselves. We repent. We repent. We reject this world and we pursue God. Humbly, we renounce the world, the things of the world. We renounce the things that this world says, here's what's valuable. The values of this world, we renounce them and the things that this world says, trust in these things, these man-made things, these things that puff us up. How do we respond? We resist the devil. James tells us, and we submit ourselves to God. The people of God here in Isaiah 2 are not resisting and they're not submitting themselves to the Lord. And James goes on to say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself and he will lift you up. We are the people of God who live among the surrounding nations. This Old Testament book is not distant from where we live. We are the people of God, given by God a message to proclaim to the people groups. Well, the Old Testament people of God failed to bring the saving message of God and to teach the people the paths of the Lord. We are that people in the new covenant, people of God. Therefore, every day, what's our response to this? Every day we are on mission. Our lives are mission. We were saved for mission. 
Every day we have an opportunity to share with people outside the four walls the good news of Jesus Christ. Opening our mouths, speaking truth. By supporting missionaries, by supporting missional efforts overseas. It's sending people and it's, we are a going people for the splendor of the King. Our day, probably same in their day, phrase we'd be familiar with, some live for the weekend. We live for the end. Some live for Friday. We live for that day. Our greatest day is when we finally realize that day is what we're living for. And when we do, we then realize that God himself is all that we need. So what's our response? Set our hearts on God. It's more than I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. Turn from that which the world has its grip on us. The things that this world loves and values and says this is what you need to set your heart on. Turn from that, repent from that and set your heart on the things of God. Dethrone the idols of our day. Toss aside the things that distract us. Toss aside the things to the moles and the bats like they're doing. And set your hearts on God and worship Him. For on that day, the Lord alone will be exalted. There will be a day. So one thing Isaiah has in agreement with every previous illustration given earlier. There will be a day. Listen closely. Some of us are so filled with the values of the world that we're unable to be filled with the Spirit of God. We're not filled with Christ. 1 John 2 would say we are filled with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Filled with this world and running on empty, seeking to serve Him. Humility is how we get empty of ourselves and then filled with Him. Here's the thing. Amazingly, we're told in Philippians, Christ emptied himself. Took on the form of a man. Humbled himself. He emptied himself. To then obediently go to the cross and die on that cross. And we await the day where he will be exalted and we will worship him. So we're called to be a repentant, emptying people that we might come to find life, fullness of life in Him. Would you stand with me? Father God, would you help us even as we sing, even as we sing as we close, Lord, be appropriate for the people of God. Lord, help us to just empty ourselves. Help us to be repentant and help us to call and cry out to you. In Jesus' name, amen.